Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. This is our deep dive episode looking back on the December sitting. This week we're talking about the increasingly weird election litigation, the first batch of opinions, the death penalty, and a big time SCOTUS lawyer getting criticism. We're also bringing back on Sarah Harrington to talk about her recent argument over Nazi looted property. Kimberly, let's start talking about the election cases. What's going on here? Uh, Well, uh, earlier this week, the state of Texas filed a case at the Supreme Court against Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Michigan seeking uh, to undo the results of the presidential election there. Uh, Jordan, 20 points if you can guess what all those states have in common. Mm, Do they have a similar state bird? (laughs) Yes, they all have a similar... No, they all uh, ended up uh, having Joe Biden as their winner. So interesting, I think. All right. Yeah. Uh, so Texas filed what's known as an original jurisdiction case um, for purposes here. That means a case between two states. And that's uh, really where the, the Supreme Court acts like a trial court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's the, the dispute in the first instance. Now, several states and President Trump are trying to intervene, as well as it seems like everyone in the world um, who has either tried to intervene in this case or filed an amicus brief. The docket for this like four day old case is uh, crazy long. Now, uh, normally on this podcast, we try not to, um, you know, favor one side over the other, but it's hard to overstate um, how spectacularly bad uh, the claims are in this case. Uh, in fact, Texas's own Solicitor General uh, does not appear on the brief. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to try to explain the legal theory too much. Instead, I'm just going to let Texas's senior Senator John Cornyn sum it up for us. Uh, this is the Republican who just won a really tough free election battle. Um, so here's what he had to say. He said he told CNN, I read the summary of it and I frankly struggle to understand the legal theory of it. Number one, why would a state, even such a great state as Texas, have a say-so on how other states administer their elections? Saying uh, even such a great state as Texas while uh, criticizing what Texas is doing is like the most Texas thing I've ever heard of anyone saying before. So Texas is messing with other states. (laughs) So the bottom line with this case is it's basically Texas trying to throw out the results of other states who voted for Biden. Is that the gist of what's going on here? That is the gist. And I will say I've seen um, most uh, court watchers um, from, you know, the far right to the far left uh, saying that the Supreme Court justices don't want to don't want anything to do with this case. And, you know, wondering how quickly it is that they're going to turn this case away. Got it. So we're basically just waiting on not what they're going to do, but when and maybe just precisely how they reject the case. Is that right? That's right. And so one issue that's a little bit thorny is that we saw a couple of terms ago, whenever some states tried to sue Colorado over their legalization of marijuana, uh, that two justices, Justices Thomas and Alito, said that they didn't think that the Supreme Court could actually uh, turn states away from hearing their cases, they at least had to hear the cases and dismiss them on the merits. So I, that's one kind of issue that's thorny. We don't know what Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and uh, Barrett think about that. So um, I, I guess that has the potential to be somewhat confusing if we get a split decision uh, based not on the merits, but on the procedure. But 
I'm sure we'll all just be very calm and we'll, you know, look at the precise legal issues and we'll come to a conclusion and, you know, everything will be fine. We'll all have tea. Yeah. Just with so many non lawyers and legally knowledgeable people watching these things, you can just see a disaster coming where even if the case is rejected and you have Alito and Thomas dissenting just on the procedural grounds, not even touching on the substance, it can lead to people saying, well, they were trying to throw the election for Trump, even if that's not what they were actually trying to do. All right. Well, uh, we are recording this on Friday, December 11th. It very well could be that by the time you're hearing this, we have an outcome in that Texas case. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Jordan, did you want to bring us up to date on uh, another petition or set of petitions that are hanging out at the Supreme Court as well? Yeah. So we talked previously about how Trump and Barr resumed the federal death penalty this summer after a 17-year break, and they've continued to conduct these executions, including up now through the lame duck period. And the most recent execution took place last night on Thursday night of Brandon Bernard, and that was over dissent from the three remaining Democratic appointees on the court. It's still early, obviously, in Justice Barrett's tenure, but it was another early data point showing that we could be looking at a 6-3 court on capital punishment now that Barrett has replaced Ginsburg on the court. Remember, over the summer, you had 5-4 decisions letting the first executions go forward, and that was with Ginsburg dissenting. And so in this case of Bernard, uh, Breyer and Kagan noted their dissent. Sotomayor wrote a dissent, and I'll just sum up her dissent from the first line, says, today the court allows the federal government to execute Brandon Bernard, despite Bernard's troubling allegations that the government secured his death sentence by withholding exculpatory evidence and knowingly eliciting false testimony against him. The next federal execution is actually set for today of Alfred Bourgeois, and there are three more that are set before Biden is going to take office, and those are scheduled for the week before his inauguration. Biden has now changed positions to saying he's against the death penalty after having a career as a senator, being tough on crime and helping to lay the groundwork in some respects and getting these cases to the point where these defendants can be executed by Trump and Barr. So we'll continue to update on those cases, but that's the latest with the federal death penalty. So you want to talk about some of the first opinions that we got so far this week. One that we are watching, maybe the most closely watched, uh, depending on what you're into, was this case Carney against Adams, which could have wound up being a pretty interesting case about judicial elections and politics and all of that. But what wound up happening there, Kimberly? Right. This is one of those cases where it's probably a bigger deal um, for what didn't happen. In mm -hmm. Carney versus Adams, the Supreme Court reinstated Delaware rules requiring um, that some state courts be made up equally of Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Delaware said in its briefs that its state courts are the envy of the nation um, and that its impartiality, its reputation for impartiality is why most large American businesses are chartered there. Uh, now, the Supreme Court didn't say that the rules uh, were okay with the Constitution. Instead, they decided it on a technical ground, saying that the person who had successfully challenged the rules below didn't actually have standing uh, to sue in this case. So kind of a classic SCOTUS punt. Gotta love it. We also had a case on military justice, right, Jordan? 
That's right. In consolidated cases under United States against Briggs, uh, there were three cases that dealt with the very serious topic of rape in the military. The question was whether there was a statute of limitations that applied. And we're dealing with cases from a time period between 1986 and 2006, where under the military code, the phrase punishable by death is very important here. And Crimes that are punishable by death under the military code during that time could be prosecuted at any time, and rape was considered a crime punishable by death. So it should seem obvious what the rules are for being able to prosecute it, but complicating things was a case from the 1970s decided by the Supreme Court that barred the death penalty for rape of an adult woman. So you see a conflict there where people who were convicted during that time period that we're talking about here said, hey, since we couldn't actually be executed, we were Weren't punishable by death. The government said it's not about what could actually happen necessarily. It's about having that text on the books. And so, as the court put it, it's a term of art argument that the government was using. The fact that it said punishable by death and that it had rape as punishable by death, regardless of that Supreme Court case, the government's argument was because that's technically on the books. There shouldn't be a statute of limitations for being able to prosecute rape in the military. Otherwise, a five-year limitations period would have applied. And so the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces actually agreed with the service members, saying a five-year limitations period should have applied, and it ruled for them. That led the government to appeal, and on appeal, the government won unanimously at the Supreme Court. And Justice Alito wrote that unanimous opinion. It was just for an eight-member court. It was argued, remember, right at the beginning of the term before Justice Barrett joined, and so she didn't take part in the decision. And Alito said there are reasonable arguments that could be made, but in the end, he said the context, specifically in talking about statute of limitations, which can, which can serve different goals than, say, constitutional issues like cruel and unusual punishment that were at issue in that 1970s case, those win the day. And so there isn't a statute of limitations for prosecuting rapes that occurred between that time period. And so that reinstates the convictions of the three cases that were at issue. It's not clear how broadly it's going to apply. It's sort of a narrow issue and it's cases that are applying to this narrow time period, but it's one of those things where perhaps people could come forward now with older claims. That's not to say that there'll necessarily be enough evidence or that'll be easy to try, but this could wind up being a decision that's limited to these three cases, although that in itself is important to everyone involved. So that's what happened in the Briggs case. The Rutledge case deals with everyone's favorite topic of ERISA. ERISA. Uh, is, those are, that's a word. <laughs> it's not a word. It's an acronym, actually. There you go. Um, so uh, Rutledge versus Pharmaceutical Care Management Association is an ERISA case dealing with uh, federal law, dealing with benefits, retirement benefits. And the court unanimously, again, an ADO court said, that Arkansas rules regarding prescription drug reimbursement rates was not preempted by ERISA. So that's, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Short and sweet. And then in Tanzan against Tanvir, this was an interesting one, dealt with the ability to sue FBI agents for putting a group of Muslim men on the no-fly list. What happened there, Kimberly? Right. So at issue in this case is whether those individuals can sue for money damages under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And RIFRA says that the government cannot burden your religious exercise without a compelling reason. And it says that if that happens, 
and the individual can sue government officials for, quote, appropriate relief. Now, the court rejected, uh, in this case, the government's arguments that plaintiffs can only get injunctive relief, not money damages. And the court pretty easily dismissed the government's arguments. And what it means uh, is that three Muslim men who say they were placed on the no-fly list in retaliation for refusing to spy on their communities can sue for damages. Now, interestingly, uh, this was an opinion by Justice Thomas, who um, rejected the government's bid uh, for the court to create uh, a policy exception uh, for bringing these damages suits. But the opinion also says that the officers um, um, in the court below can um, try to assert qualified immunity. Uh, which, as um, we've talked about on this podcast before, is a judge-made doctrine itself, shielding government officials from suit. Uh, so the court didn't explain why it could, I guess for lack of a better description, uh, apply its made-up jurisdiction of qualified immunity, but it couldn't make up um, a policy exception. Right. So this case could very well end up with the men not being able to get relief based on qualified immunity, but going forward other religious claims will be able to win money damages. Okay, so Kimberly, before we bring on Sarah Harrington, you wanna set up the case a bit that you've been covering and what the government's position is here that Sarah's arguing against? Sure, so these are two related but separate cases. Both of them deal with property looted by the Nazis during World War II. Uh, in these cases, heirs to um, Holocaust victims want to sue in the U.S. Uh, to recover the property. And the foreign countries here, Hungary and Germany, say that U.S. courts should stay out of these disputes and that they should leave it to their domestic courts. In the German case, the justices will consider whether the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act's expropriation exception allows heirs of Jewish art dealers to sue for the return of famous medieval relics that the dealers were forced to sell at a significantly discounted price. Uh, in, and in both that case and the Hungarian cases, the governments argue that even if the plaintiffs can sue under the FSIA, that the court should still dismiss the case uh, under principles of international comedy. Now, the foreign governments here are supported by the United States, which says that if foreign countries can be sued here, then there's no reason that the U.S. can't be sued abroad for perceived human rights abuses. Sarah Harrington is a partner at Goldstein and Russell. She's argued 22 Supreme Court cases. Before joining Goldstein and Russell, Sarah worked for eight years as an assistant to the Solicitor General and was an appellate attorney in DOJ's Civil Rights Division. Sarah, welcome back to cases and controversies. Thanks, Jordan. I'm really happy to join you guys again. So uh, we chatted a little bit, Jordan and I, about uh, the case that you argued most recently. But can you just give us a little background about the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and what it is meant to address? Yes. So there's a statute called the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, as you say, which was enacted in 1976. Um, And what it does is it addresses whether foreign sovereigns have immunity to suit in U.S. courts. So that means whether they can be sued in our courts. Um, And before 1976, there was sort of um, an ad hoc system where the executive branch, the State Department, would tell courts like, oh, you should give the sovereign defendant immunity in this case, but not in that case. And... um, Both the executive branch and Congress felt like the system wasn't working very well because foreign sovereigns would come and put diplomatic pressure on the State Department. And so there was not really a predictable 
set of rules where you could predict in advance um, who was going to be able to be sued and who wasn't. Uh, and so Congress created this law that has these very specific rules about what types of cases um, can, uh, can be brought against foreign sovereigns in U.S. courts. And so the general rule is that, you know, foreign sovereigns can't be sued in the United States unless one of uh, the FSIA's exceptions apply. And in, in at least the German case, the exception that we're talking about here is the expropriation exception. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's the exception in both cases. There's um, the exception, it says if you if the plaintiff asserts claims that rights in property were taken in violation of international law, um, and then can satisfy this uh, one of a couple of different commercial nexus requirements. So there has to be the foreign sovereign or its agency has to use the property or proceeds it gets from the property in some sort of connection, commercial um, transaction with the United States, then the exception applies. And so in the German case, uh, the issue is whether or not, you know, um, taking art can really satisfy uh, this exception. Can you explain that a little bit more for us? Yeah, so the court heard argument in two cases on Monday, um, my case against Hungary and then a case against Germany, as you say, and both cases arise out of um, the Holocaust. And um, so they're both alleging property takings um, by the governments, these sort of um, either the you know the German Nazi government or in my case the Hungarian government, which was allied with Germany, um, the taking of property of Jews. And so in the German case, um, it was the they took um, a collection of artworks. Um, I think they're sort of sometimes referred to as cultural relics, um, and they were the plaintiffs alleged in that case that they were forced to sell um, those pieces for less than they were worth. And then what's the issue um, in your case? I mean, I, I know that the exception is, um, is an element of your case, but in the Supreme Court, the issue that you guys are um, talking about is just slightly different, right? Yeah, so it's, well, and it's actually common in both cases. So the, so the issue, the German case has two issues, and the one about the takings is whether a taking that is genocidal or is part of a genocide can be a taking that is in violation of international law under the statute. And then both cases, and that, that actually, that issue was decided in my case in an earlier appeal, but Hungary didn't ask for a review of that issue in my case. So it's this sort of funny, um, the, the issues are presented in the cases in sort of a funny way, um, but it's relevant to my case. Um, and just to be thorough, my, my clients allege, um, I represent a class of Hungarian Holocaust survivors and victims who are bringing claims that all of their property was taken. So their shelter and their clothing and things that they needed to survive. Um, not, but, you know, and, and maybe including artwork, but it's not specifically about artwork. And then the other issue that's in my case um, and is in the other case is this question, and it's a little bit of a mushy question, but um, there's this, there is, or maybe there isn't, a doctrine of um, international comedy abstention. Um, and comedy, um, which courts have described as sort of a, a famously kind of, um, they haven't used the word mushy, but that's what they mean, a mushy word. It's supposed to sort of take into account the dignity of foreign sovereigns. And it's sort of, um, it's a consideration that goes into lots of different legal doctrines where um, you're just showing respect to other sovereigns. And so it comes up when you're thinking about um, whether our laws have um, application outside of the U.S. borders and things like that. And, um, and in this context, it comes up in thinking about whether when you have a controversy against a foreign sovereign that involves conduct that happened abroad um, and Congress has given jurisdiction in the FSIA, whether a court can nevertheless decide not to exercise jurisdiction based on international comedy. 
And so we saw the justices talk a lot about whether or not the United States itself uh, could be sued abroad if these cases were allowed to go forward. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, whether or not that's a realistic um, view of the impact of these cases or you know, um, what might be uh, available to kind of um, stop the political implications in those cases? Yeah, so the, um, you know, one of the big concerns that's been raised by the United States and by Hungary on basically on behalf of the United States is that if we allow too many suits against foreign sovereigns to happen in our courts, then we're going to start getting sued all over the world. And sort of the pitch that Hungary and Germany made was like, look, if you guys can sue us in your courts for the Holocaust, you're going to get sued elsewhere for slavery, for the slave trade. And, um, and you know, our basic response is, well, this risk of reciprocity is a concern that's up to Congress to think about. And, um, you know, there, every country in the world has some sort of doctrine of foreign sovereign immunity. And no other country in the world has this sort of expropriation exception that Congress wrote into the law. And so in our view, Congress has already decided to assume some risk of reciprocity. And if the executive, and, and that was in conjunction with the executive, the executive the State Department helped Congress write the FSIA. And if they now think, well, gosh, this is broader than we'd like, then the, the you know, their avenue is to go to Congress, not to have sort of district courts make these foreign policy determinations on their own. Well, great. Um, anything else that we should be thinking about uh, as we wait for the justices to hand down decisions in these cases? No, you know, and it was a inter very interesting argument. I felt like they were very engaged and um, like they had really absorbed the arguments in the brief. There was, I thought, an interesting thread throughout the argument in my case about separation of powers um, and sort of just touching on what I said a second ago that um, there's this question of whether, you know, who should make foreign policy determinations and if the main pitch is like, gosh, we shouldn't have these suits because of the foreign policy and policy implications, our view is, well, you shouldn't have courts making that decision because the Constitution doesn't really give that authority to courts. Um, and so our view is like Congress already made the decision, but at least you should have the executive telling you to dismiss um, a suit if, if before you before you do it. And in this case, they've been invited to do that, uh, this, the, the Department of Justice, and they haven't done it. Just out of curiosity, do you know why it is that they haven't taken a stronger position on that, just politically? So I don't know for sure. I mean, my sense is that, um, I guess like the, the interpretation that's most friendly to my client, which of course is the one I'm inclined to take, is that they don't think this suit should be dismissed, that... Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of different sort of Holocaust era claims brought against different countries. And the United States has cooperated with a whole bunch of countries to set up these alternative dispute resolution mechanisms where countries countries and their sometimes their private companies who have been sued set aside money. And there's like a, a way to have a global resolution of these claims. Um, and so Germany's done that in France and Austria with respect to and Switzerland with respect to certain types of claims. But Hungary has never done it. And so... I guess my interpretation is that the United States thinks, well, because there's there hasn't been any effort by Hungary to engage in that kind of process, we're not going to recommend dismissal. On the other hand, Hungary is a NATO ally, and so they may, there may be sensitivities about coming in and giving an affirmative green light to the suit, and they'd rather just sort of stay quiet. Well, Jordan, since we're talking about uh, arguments, and do you want to chat about how remote arguments are going? Yeah, sure. Now that we've talked about some of the substance of the case, wondering, Sarah, if we could talk a little bit about the atmosphere here. It seems a lot of people have different views about how the justices are conducting these remote arguments. Wondering just 
in the first instance, talking about how, how yours went. Do you have anything interesting or fun to share just from conducting a argument in this unique way? Yeah, it was pretty different. You know, um, after having done 21 in person, it's um, it was a pretty different experience. I'd say the, the most stressful thing before the argument was uh, finding a landline. The court was like, please use a landline. Don't use a VoIP line or a cell phone. And it turns out nobody has actual like analog landlines anymore. So we had to have one installed and then our phone wouldn't work with it. So we had to get a new phone. And those are the kind of logistics, you know, you're not really... Uh, I wasn't accustomed to dealing with as part of my argument prep. Um, on the other hand, it didn't matter what my hair looked like or if my shoes were comfortable, you know. Um, and so that part was kind of nice. Um, but it's, you know, it's a very different experience as the advocate because you can't, there's, you know, you can't see them. So you get no visual cues. You can't tell if your arguments are landing. There's, um, you know, we were warned in advance, be extra careful about interrupting the justices because you can't see when their question is done. And of course, I right off the bat immediately interrupted the chief justice. And I like I did that a lot in person with with other justices like Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg when she was on the court because they tend to have a lot of pauses. But, um, you know, so there are things like that. It's just a little bit harder to communicate. Um, And you also because each of them takes a turn, you don't know as well who's really interested and what they're interested in because, um, you know, some of them might just feel if, if they didn't have a turn set aside, they might just stay quiet. Um, but they're less likely to do that. Um, but it was nice. I, I had never had a question from Justice Thomas before. So that um, I enjoyed that. We had a good exchange. Yeah. In terms of the not interrupting part, I think it was your argument, but correct me if I'm wrong, not when you were arguing, but at the beginning of it, when the lawyer asked Justice Breyer if he was still trying to ask a question and Breyer wasn't. He's like, no, I'm not. Just keep talking. And if there is, if, I'm sorry, Justice Breyer, were you asking a question? No, no, no. Okay, so if it... Yeah, no, it's harder. Um, and there have been some some um, kind of interesting moments, um, not in my arguments, not that day, but where, um, you know, they each get a certain amount of time where some of the justices have been so kind of worked up that they just like roll over the, the referee, the chief justice trying to um, cut them off. And Justice Alito did that um, I guess last week, um, and then Justice Breyer did it this week, um, and he was just, um, it was with, I think it was uh, when Canon Chan again was arguing, he was so enthusiastic about what he was saying, I think he just didn't even hear the Chief Justice. Um, <laughs> he, you wouldn't notice that in, in person because there would be nobody, you know, sort of policing the time. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And so, obviously, as you mentioned, this is not your first argument, and people have different views on how the justices have been conducting them, ranging from it's actually pretty cool to hear all the justices talk to someone like the legendary reporter Lyle Denniston, who considers this basically like a existential threat to democracy, the way the justices are conducting these arguments. Where do you fall in this spectrum and do you have any friendly advice for the court on perhaps how they could improve it if you do think there are any improvements that could be made so i think they're doing quite well with a difficult situation i'm sure they and everyone will be glad to get back to in-person arguments but um it's just not possible now and i think um they're sort of making the best of a difficult situation as i said i I don't know why they um they're not choosing to do something like skype like some of the courts of appeals have done or um, Zoom or whatever, some sort of video platform. Um, I suspect it's because um, they feel it might erode their resistance to having um, video. I think it would be helpful to the advocates. Um, but, you know, given that they choose not to do that, I think it's worked pretty well. It's gotten better. I think it was a little more, it was a little choppier 
in the May arguments, which was the first time they did it. Um, and I think they've gotten a little more skilled at like figuring out how to use their time. Um, there is there is a lot more of like um, hurrying advocates along if they're being long winded and there's another question that the justice has. So I think I think they're doing all right. I don't see it as the existential threat that Lyle does. I'll say that. <laughs> um, and I actually think there are some advantages. I, I hope they don't keep this system um, longer than necessary. But it is sort of neat for people to be able to listen to the arguments while they're happening. Um, I think that's been sort of a great educational opportunity for the country, for folks who take advantage of it. Um, the other side of it is I think it's hard. I mean, I have, so I have a, a team of co-counsel in my case who've been working on the case for 10 years and it's very, they've put a lot of themselves and their you know effort into it. Many of them have um, family members who were um, victims in the Holocaust. And it's sort of a bummer for them that they weren't able to come to the court and you know kind of see it happening and um, be at the table with me. So that's a little bit too bad. Although I watched it um, while I was holding hands with my son and petting my cat. So I enjoyed it. No, I had tennis shoes on and my hair in a ponytail. So. <laughs> well, thanks so much for sharing all that with, uh, with us, Sarah. We'll have to see what the justices do uh, with this case. And thanks for joining us. Yeah, sure. Happy to be here. Well, it was always good to talk to Sarah Harrington. Before we go, one more interesting argument that we can touch on a bit that kind of blew up in terms of criticism here was Neil Katyal's argument that defended Nestle and what people equated with defending child slavery. What's going on there? Right. So uh, this is a case involving Nestle and the Alien Tort Statute. Uh, the statute dates back to the 1700s, but it wasn't until recently that it was used to try to address human rights abuses abroad. Now, the Supreme Court has since tried to cut back on the usage of the ATS in that way in cases like Kiobel and Jesner. In Kiobel, the court said that the ATS couldn't be used to address purely foreign conduct. And Jesner, the Supreme Court said foreign corporations couldn't be sued in the United States under the ATS. Now, this latest case involves American companies, uh, Nestle, alleged to have aided and abetted child slavery by buying cocoa beans from farmers who used um, child slavery. And these cases have divided the justices along ideological lines, if not in result, then in reasoning. Uh, but right off the bat, uh, when the Chief Justice's first question, he suggested that this case might be different. Uh, Mr. Katio, uh, in this case, uh, no foreign country has objected to the United States hailing its own citizens into its own courts. And why should we be uh, cautious in terms of international relations uh, in such a case? Um, and what objection would foreign countries have to ensuring that uh, U.S. corporations follow customary international law? And even Justice Alito said that accepting Nestle's arguments for why it should be liable would lead to untenable results. Here's Justice Alito. Uh, Mr. Katyal, many of your arguments lead to results that are pretty hard to take. So suppose a U.S. corporation makes a big show of supporting every cause du jour, but then surreptitiously hires agents in Africa to kidnap children and keep them in bondage on a plantation so that the corporation can buy cocoa or coffee or some other agricultural product at bargain prices. You would say that the victims who couldn't possibly 
get any recovery in the courts of the country where they had been held should be thrown out of court in the United States where this corporation is headquartered and does business. So it still looks like Nestle might win this case, but probably more narrowly than they were expecting. Um, but during arguments, wasn't it the only time that uh, Kyle caught some flack, right, Jordan? That's right. You saw Twitter blow up when people put together that the person who was making this argument is the same person who you'll see on MSNBC and elsewhere, basically is a lawyer who's the face of the so-called resistance in some ways, and then on the other hand, making this argument that is at least implicated in defending at some level the company from being liable, at least in the context of this statute for being involved in child slavery abuses. And to kind of sum it up is the title of this one article that I saw in the New Republic titled, Neil Kotyal and the Depravity of Big Law. So that kind of sums it up. And to offer a defense to that and to kind of bring it full circle in, in some ways, just by coincidence, there was a post on SCOTUS blog from Tom Goldstein, who's uh, Sarah's law partner, just as it happens, who had a post titled Confusing Supreme Court Counsel with Their Clients. And so both of those titles are kind of self-explanatory for the arguments that they contained. And one line that I'll quote from Tom's story says, I start from the idea that our legal system is premised on clients having the best advocacy so that courts will make the best decisions. That is a proposition that the American left, which prides itself on standing up for the powerless, including criminal defendants, treasures. But nonetheless, that principle sometimes gets lost in a drive for ideological purity. And that was what Tom said about that. Um, I'm not so sure that criminal defense is the same context right. as civil litigation. The, if you're a criminal defendant, you don't necessarily have a choice at, about what's happening. And there are provisions baked into our constitution that address that. But uh, nonetheless, it was a interesting phenomenon that we saw come up after the argument. You know, I was really um, interested that uh, it happened now because it's not as if uh, Neil Cadiel hasn't um, made similar arguments in the past. So in that mm -hmm. Hugh Bell case um, and in Jesner, he filed amicus briefs um, on the side of, you know, companies trying to, you know, avoid liability in these cases. And then, of course, I don't know if listeners remember, but in uh, the cases about public sector unions, you know, Neil Cadio was on the main brief to, um, you know, invalidate those. So I'm kind of surprised at the timing, um, but. Yeah. I mean, for people who don't follow this stuff, it's can be almost random the point at which information reaches them. So it's uh, maybe just unfortunate timing for Mr. Cotyal. Uh What do you think? Should we wrap it up? Should that do yes. it? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, we will be back next week with a very special guest. Um, not just a special guest, but a very special one this time around. Uh, so until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. This is Adam Ellington, and I'm here to announce a new season of Uncommon Law, a narrative podcast series from Bloomberg Law. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! 
My co-hosts and I will speak with African-American attorneys and hear their perspectives on how big law is, or in some cases, isn't adapting to become more diverse and inclusive. It's not fair, but what can be better than being on the front lines of helping to make this country better for all of us? If not us, who? If not now, when? Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.